Amen. Thanks, Alex. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Really glad that you're all here. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor at Ridgetop Church, and uh, we celebrated one year last Sunday. Last Sunday was our birthday, um, so we're excited. Um, so welcome to a brand new baby church. We, uh, we've seen God drawing people to the gospel, drawing people into this fellowship, and uh, we're excited for this fall season for a whole uh, new group of folks that uh, have been coming in and, and being a part. Um, last week, we began working our way through the book of Genesis, and I preached on one verse, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis. So you didn't miss too much right, if, uh, if you weren't here last week. Uh, but I do hope that you'll keep your finger in that page 1 and uh, go back to it as I refer to these scriptures uh, again uh, and again. A um, little recap of last week uh, in Genesis 1, verse 1, right before what Alex just read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we, we drew from that were, were just two big ideas. One, that God is self-existent. He didn't come from anywhere. He wasn't created. He's always been. He is. He always will be. Uh, another word might be eternal, right? But not only is he self-existent, he is self-revealing. Uh, he, he lets himself be known to uh, his creation. So we kind of took those two big ideas uh, out of that first verse. And today we're going to see this expanded even more, this idea that God is self-existent and the, the, the uncaused cause, right? He is the originator of everything and, and we're also going to see him revealing himself more, and in particular in the way that he creates the world. And this is what I want you to keep in the back of your mind is what is God saying about himself by the way he goes about creating the world? Because he obviously could create the world with just one word. He could have just said, presto, universe, and then he's done with it, and he can just spend the rest of the week on vacation. Um, but he doesn't do that. He's very intentional about the way that he goes about creating the world. And we want to be asking ourselves, what does this reveal about God? Uh, and when we get to the end, hopefully we'll have some, some, some good truth about that. So Genesis 1-2, uh, we see that God is not creating from nothing, but now he's creating from something, right? So the, it says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So last week, we talked about how God can create ex nihilo, out of nothing, and indeed, He did. But what He created was a blob, and it's formless and void and dark, and He's displayed or revealed as the consummate artist who's going to begin with some raw materials, and He's going to order those materials in a way that is more beautiful and more useful more glorious, uh, much like an artist would take a chunk of marble and create a sculpture out of it, or an artist starting with canvas and paints and creating a masterpiece. God is doing that with a dark, watery chaos. Now, the word being translated there uh, that, that describes this chaos is a word that, at least etymologically, is connected to the Mesopotamian goddess Tiamat. Right? And so, 
in the culture of the day where this is being written, where this is being uh, revealed, uh, there's a lot of belief in Tiamat, that Tiamat is the goddess of the primordial chaos and that Tiamat uh, has sexual union with the god Absu and the two of them birth literally the universe and they birth a whole pantheon of gods. This was standard fare in Mesopotamia during the time where Genesis 1 is being uh, revealed. And here in, in Genesis, we only see one God. And the watery chaos is a creation. It's not a god. It's not a goddess. It's not a pantheon of gods and goddesses having a big battle or sexual union or any of those things that you would find very common in a lot of ancient creation myths. There's one God, and he is creating everything. Now, again, the, the chaos is described as formless, void, or empty, and dark. And you need to keep those categories in the back of your mind because those are going to be important as we move through each of the days of creation. It also says that God is hovering. Uh, he is ruha. He is uh, doing something that is, the, the writer uses a word that usually is describing an eagle that is hovering over her eaglets trying to get them to fly. And so it communicates intimate connection with the creation. So, so it's not like God is standing way back and going, let there be light. He is intimately connected with the creation. So what do we need to do to get things started? Well, we need to turn on the light, and this is day one, and this is where we see the day and the night, the light and the dark. God says, verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. There's a logic to this passage. Um, it's, it, it reminds me of trying to sort of set up uh, a dark closet that doesn't have any shelving or any place to hold my clothing. The first thing I got to do, I got to flip on the light. And this is what, this is what God does. He turns on the light. And then if we were to work at that closet, we would then create some shelving. We'd have some kind of a bar to hang clothing in. We would, we would form it. And then we would fill it with our clothing, our shoes, or whatever it is that we want to put in that closet. There's so many organizing TV shows and documentaries right now. It's, it's, it's crazy how many on Amazon Prime and uh, all, all the different streaming uh, places. And I love, I, just, I don't know, I just love these things. I, I love seeing the before and after of these organizational kind of experiences that people are having when the, you know, the designers come in and the place is a wreck. Right? And it doesn't even have to be anything that complicated. So it could be like a drawer. Like, this is, you got a drawer like that? I mean, I, it just drives me crazy. I can't find the scissors. I can't. But then after some organization, ah, it's, it's amazing, right? But there's some forming and there's some filling, right? And we go back, go, go to the next one, the, the, to the closet, right? You got it just stacks of stuff and you can't find anything. And then, presto, you get that. Right? But there's some forming, some creating some shelving and some drawers and 
some, some racks, and then you're able to fill it with all those things that are in the closet. And then the, this last one here, um, you know, the linen closet. I don't know what it is about the linen closet. It just always ends up looking like that. But presto, it's formed and filled, and it looks like that. That's pretty awesome, right? And, and that's just like closets and drawers. You know? I mean, some of these shows are doing entire homes where they're forming, they're, they're filling. And there's something about that's very, very satisfying, at least for me. Um, so how does God get the light on? Well, he just speaks. He just says, let there be light or be light made. It's really a literal, kind of literal translation. Um, in the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible, the, the words that are translated there is, is fiat lux, right? That, that light is being created by divine fiat. He is just declaring, be there light, and there is light. Now, he doesn't need another god or goddess to pull this off. He doesn't need to have a battle or have sexual union or any, anything. He just... Fiat looks, and there is light. And at being the first creation, it, light becomes so important throughout the Bible and, and really just in human, human imagination. Um, Derek Kidner, in his uh, commentary on Genesis, says this, Light has lent its name to all that is life-giving, truth-giving, gladdening, and pure and appropriately marks the first step from chaos to order. And as it precedes the sun, so in the final vision, it outlasts light. So you may notice we don't have sun or moon yet, but we have light. And when you go to the end of the Bible, and there's no more sun, and you get light. Right? This is God bringing about light by divine fiat. Now, he also doesn't just say, let there be light. He then does some separating. So this is the forming part. He's like, okay, we're going to put light over here. We're going to put dark over here. So he separates that out. Then, then, he, then he says, okay, we're going to name it. And he names it night. And he names it day. So partly what he's communicating is that he is sovereign over those things. When you name things, it communicates that you are the ruler over those things. Um, some of us spent a little time in Istanbul this past summer. And Istanbul was not always named Istanbul. It was Constantinople before it was Istanbul. And why was it Constantinople? Well, because the Roman emperor Constantine named the city after himself, which you can do when you're the emperor. And when others came in, took the place over, they're like, no longer is it Constantinople, it's Istanbul, right? They wanted to communicate something about who was in charge of that great city. Well, here, God's not naming cities or plant species. He's naming night and day. He's saying, I'm sovereign over these cosmic things that I have created, I have organized, and I rule and reign and attend to these things. He also declares that they're good. That all of creation is good, which means what? It means a lot, actually. Uh, this Hebrew word that's being translated here can mean good, can mean pleasant, agreeable, excellent, rich, valuable, appropriate, 
becoming or beautiful, glad, happy, prosperous, kind, even, even ethically right. This, this word good that, that's being translated, it has a lot of facets of meaning. It's a very glorious word. And God's looking out over what he's done so far, and he says, this is good. This is good. And why is creation good? Because it's being created by a good God. The artist is good and consequently is creating a good universe. God is good. God is pleasant. He's excellent. He's valuable. He's beautiful. He's happy. He's prosperous. He's wise. He's understanding. He's kind. He's right. He's good. So, day two, verse six. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So we had light at the end of the first day. And it was like you couldn't see what was going on in the chaos, right? The, this uh, uh, watery, dark chaos. But you get the light on and you're like, whoa, this place is a mess. And there's, there's water, not just on the surface of the, the, the ocean, but there's so much moisture. It's like a rolling fog that's sitting up on top of the water. And it goes all the way up. It's just t- all this uh, moisture. And, you know, maybe you've been on an airplane when you're, like, in heavy cloud cover, and you get, I don't know, 10,000 feet, 15,000 feet, and you just pop up above the clouds, and it's, like, well-lit and sunny, and you're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. There was none of that. There was no well-lit, sunny, nothing. It was just the rolling fog that was everywhere. And so God says, let there be an expanse or a a firmament, what King James says, because of the Latin. and, and so it's this expanse of, of air and atmosphere that pushes the moisture up to the clouds and opens up the air over the oceanic waters. Um, Derek Kidner says, God is raising the enveloping vapors clear of the ocean surface. And if you've spent any time on the coast, usually early in the morning, that heavy fog, it's like zero visibility. And they're like, don't go anywhere, don't do anything, don't, don't take your boat out, we can't see anything. And then about mid-morning, it just burns off. The sun comes out, and it's clear and crisp, right? Some, something similar to that, going from this thick rolling fog to this clear, crisp, 100% visibility. Now, we're seeing some patterns here that are similar to day one. We see God speaking something into existence. We see him forming something, right? So he's moving this, this water to, to the sky, and he's separating it from the oceanic water. Uh, he's also naming things, right? Again, showing his sovereignty over uh, all of creation. And here he's saying, uh, this is heaven. Um, and when he says that, he's meaning it's, it's the sky, right? The heavens uh, in this context is... Um, the sky. But where's the earth, right? He's supposed to be creating the heavens and the earth. Where, where's the earth? Well, day three, we're going to get the earth. Verse nine, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. 
God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas, and God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So we see the completion of the forming in day three. So now we've got sea and we've got earth. But then we have him beginning the filling of the creation, right? And so now that we have the, the, the earth, we can fill that with vegetation. And this vegetation has the ability to replicate itself. Like is begetting like. Tigers are able to reproduce and have uh, tigers, right? Later on when we have uh, creatures. But here it's plants that can beget plants. And so apple trees create apple seeds, and you plant those apple seeds and you get more apple trees. Right? And so he's, he's beginning to create an ecology, an e- ecosystem. It's all interdependent on itself. We've got light, we've got water, we've got dirt, now we've got plants. And it's this very beautiful synergistic ecosystem that is thriving, and it's all good. And so he's looking at the complexity of it increase and the interdependence of it increase, and he's looking at it and saying, oh, that's good. This is good. This is good work. This is beautiful. It's useful. It's something that should be uh, praised because of the work that he's done. It is truly wonderful when he looks at the goodness of his creation. Then in day four, he fills the heavens. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So now he's filling the heavens, right? The sun, the moon, the stars. And this is really important, especially for an ancient reader. And it is in the perspective of an ancient reader. Like, we know that the moon does not produce light. Right? We know it reflects light from the sun. But from the perspective of the ancient reader, this is, this is what it seems like. But he lets them know that the, the moon and the stars and the sun, they're creations. They're not things to worship. And again, this was standard fare in Mesopotamia would be to worship the sun and the stars and the moon. They're so far away and you can't really see them and they're so glorious. And so just making up stories about these are gods and goddesses and we bow down and worship And the Genesis account is saying, no, these are creations, glorious creations from the one true God. What we do know, uh, one of the things we know from astronomers is that the heavens seem to be fairly ordered, that the planets and the stars are gathered in these things called galaxies, right? We live in the Milky Way galaxy. I think it's like 100 billion stars. That's what the internet told me. 
And then I asked Virginia, who's an astronomy major, and she said, yeah, that's about right. That's probably a good guesstimate, 100 billion stars, right? But then I read this other thing where it said 2 trillion galaxies that are in the observable universe, meaning we, with our current technology, could get a look at up to 2 trillion galaxies. And I was like, there's no way that, that's not true. I said, Virginia, is that true? She's like, yeah, that's true, right? And, and so I, you know, I go down in this internet hole, and so I brought some pictures, of course. Um, so we have, this one's nicknamed the Whirlpool Galaxy, right? They have, like, less fun names, like M51. Um, but uh, this, is, this is one of those galaxies, one of those two trillion galaxies that's out there. We have the Andromeda. You may have heard of, heard of that galaxy. Um, the Pinwheel Galaxy. And then here's my favorite, the Sombrero Galaxy. And that's just four of the two trillion observable galaxies in the universe. And God is just speaking these into existence. Right? Now, not only is he able to do this massive scale creation, but he's also doing intricate work in these nooks and crannies of his universe. We see this in day five. Um, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with, with, uh, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was Good. Now you see the word swarm in there a lot. ESV is trying to get at the meaning of uh, the Hebrew word there that's being um, repeated again and again, which anytime you're studying your Bible and you see a word repeated, you're like, huh, what's going on here? Um, and we usually use swarm for like flying insects, so it's really not that warm of a word for us. But um, what it's communicating is, is that the, the creation is just teeming, right? It's teeming with life. The water is teeming with life. The sky is teeming with life. I mean, I see this every, every morning at my apartment. I, our apartment looks out over this little spot that they call Central Park. Not quite the Central Park that I was uh, visited a few times in New York City. But it's a lovely park. And for some reason, all the birds show up at like 6.30 in the morning, and they're just teeming. They're watering there. They're, they're tweeting. They're doing whatever the birds do. Um, but, but you can see this, even in our city, you can see teeming animals, birds uh, in, in the skies. Um, now, this is important, again, for ancient readers, especially with the sea creatures, because uh, they had a lot of, of myths that they had built up about sea creatures, and understandably so, right? You see a, a whale jump out of the water, or you see a massive shark or a squid, and they're like, those people, that, you know, those things are scary. And uh, they would come up with all kinds of uh, myths about the, these, these being gods and goddesses. And uh, Genesis says, no, those are just creations. Those are creations. But the one true God, he, he came up with those massive sea creatures. And not only that, they're good. And it's interesting because it, God breaks the script here in verse 22 and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. 
and there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And you see, God blessing his, his uh, creation, and, and he's, he's, he's moving toward his creation in a favorable way, is one way to think about that, that blessing. He's favorable towards his creation. He's not aloof. He's not hostile toward it. He's favorable toward it. And he moves toward it and declares uh, a blessing, even over all those crazy sea creatures that everybody was so um, afraid of. And this makes sense that a creator would be favorable toward their creation. And I uh, was reading in, in a book by Dallas Willard. He said, you know, if I made you a peanut butter sandwich and I gave it to you, and you took it, and you, like, stomped on it, I would be hurt. Like, I created that peanut butter sandwich for you, and it has a part of me in it. And so it makes sense that God would create a whole universe. He would be favorable toward it. He would want good things for it. He would be moving toward it. We get to day six, and he fills the earth with creatures. God said, verse 24, let the earth Bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And so we saw him form the land and the sea, now we see him filling the land with creatures. And you see this, this language of according to their kinds, according to their kinds, according to their kinds. It's communicated in order. Sometimes this is the, called the description of the created order, right? And again, in the ancient world, everything was just magic. I was like, how, how, did, how did that bird fly? Oh, it's magic. It's, it, it's the, the goddess of the sky that makes the birds fly. And Genesis is saying, no. <laughs> There's a one true God who, who created everything, and he's created it in an order, and it actually works according to a design, which is why apple trees make seeds that produce apple trees, right? And so you see this ongoing theme of this order. Now, uh, again, he calls it good. He, he sees those creatures that he places on the, on the, the earth, and he calls them Good. Now, the, a part of the pattern that I didn't mention was the day pattern, right? He, it says each time there was morning, there was evening, and then it declares whatever day uh, it was. And if you've been around Christians any amount of time, you know that this can be a little bit contentious about whether or not was the earth created in six days or was it created billions of years or something in between. And so there's a lot, been a lot of conversation uh, over especially the last hundred years about what do we think about the age of the earth? And, and that conversation has been brought to head in part because some in the scientific community, maybe we might say most, say the earth is very old. And so the church has been wrestling with this as to whether or not it's an old earth or it's a young earth, and how do we make sense of the book of Genesis? So here's some of the, the, the ways that Christians have tried to make sense of at least this part of the conversation about Genesis. I think Genesis 1 has a lot more to say about a lot of different things than whether or not the earth is young or old. Um, but here are some of the, the, the ways that, that Christians have made sense of this. So one is that the earth is young and that scientists that are saying it's old are getting it wrong. And they would spend a lot of time working on scientific explanations for why the earth is young. This would be the young earth understanding. It could be that the earth is young 
but it looks old, right? This would be like the mature earth theory. So just like Adam was created a grown man, they say, well, the earth was created a grown earth. When you look at it, it looks old, but actually it's young. So that's all the mature earth understanding. Um, it could be that the earth is young, but looks old because of the space-time continuum and how time worked as God was unfolding His creation. I call this the way-too-smart-for-me uh, view. I read a book on it. This is a long time ago, probably 30 years ago I was reading this book. And I was like, this, I mean, this sounds good. And there's like all kinds of like mathematical equations. And I was just like, I'm just not following you. So go, go read those books, find that out. And then you can tell me whether or not this makes sense. But this is one of the ways that Christians have made sense of this, that the, that the understanding of time changes as things expand in the universe, which definitely has some scientific merit. Um, could be the earth is old, but God waited a really long time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. So he created a formless and void, and then he waited billions of years, and then he did, did the rest of the creation. That's called the gap theory, right? the gap of time between 1-1 and 1-2. Uh, others say, well, the earth is old. And the days in Genesis are not 24-hour days, but they're epochs of time. And so it's really showing this long, you know, billions of years, and these are, this is just... And you can kind of see a progression of how things get more complex and more complex, and, and you can kind of jive that with uh, some other scientific theories. Uh, then the, the last one I'll mention is that the, the world is old, the universe is old, and that Genesis is theological, and we shouldn't push it to tell us anything about science. And so this is what, for instance, for example, not, not everyone in this camp would be theistic evolutionists, but this would be one of the groups that would say, believe in evolution, just believe God used evolution to bring about the world. Right. Now, which one's right? Well, the one that's right, I don't know. I don't know. And I, I can see merit in all of these. And there's more, where that came from, okay? Now, what we're going to do here, and you, you may not like this, and so you need to know what we're going to do here. We're going to hold these in an open hand. We're going to hold this in an open hand. Do you think the earth is a young earth or an old earth or it looks old, but it's really young? Or it, We can talk about it and, and we, we can argue about it in, in, good, you know, in a good spirit. But we're going to hold these in an open hand. What we are going to hold unswervingly to is what this passage says about God. And what it says about God is a lot. <laughs> I think I could come up with, you know, 25 points. I'm not going to give you 25 points. I'm just going to give you four. So one that we've talked about is God is self-existent. He's not a creation. He's eternal. He always was. He is and He always will be. We're going to hold unswervingly to that. Also that God is sovereign. He's the sovereign king over everything in the universe. He superintends everything in the universe. And we see that in Him naming night and day and sea and earth. <laughs> he, he, he is the king. 
over all things. Um, we also are going to hold unswervingly that God is, is a, a God who reveals himself to his creation. And in part, he does that through his creation. By looking at what we're reading today and even going for a walk you know, out in, in nature, that, that God is revealing himself, at least at some level, through his creation. And he's also a God who reveals himself through human language. And we see him using language. We see this written down for us. And so he's a revealer of himself, not just through creation, but through human language, both spoken and written. And then he reveals himself through Christ. And we talked about this last week, that God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, came to be the ultimate revelation of himself. I was reading in Mark yesterday, just, just in my own kind of personal reading, and I read this quote from Jesus, Mark 13, 31. I don't even have it on the screen here, but he, this is Jesus saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is talking some smack right there. I mean, come on. He's saying, I am God. I am sovereign over everything. The words that put this universe into existence, those are my words. <laughs> and so God is a, a revealing God that is revealed ultimately through Christ. And then fourthly, that God is good. He's good. We see that as he creates a good universe and declares it good and he blesses that universe. And you might be saying, well, what about the humans? We'll talk about them next week, okay? We're gonna, we kind of cut it off here. We're just going to talk about God this morning. We're not going to talk about too much about those humans. Because part of what we see the opening of the Bible being is, is it's God-centered. It's about God. It doesn't start off being about humans. Reality really is God-centric. That's what's real. Whether we believe it or not, that is what is true. And I, I pray that this passage would be stirring us all out of our self-focus and our stuff-focus and bringing us up and out toward a God-focused heart this morning. That it would stir us to praise and worship and submit to the King over all things, the one true God. The Nicene Creed, one of the oldest creeds of the church, opens up this way. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Even if that was the only part of the creed, then there's a bunch more. Even if that was it, that would be cause to say, I need to move out of my self-centeredness, my stuff-centeredness, and I need to move up to worship the one true creator God. Um, this is hard for us. This is hard for us to move out of self and stuff and move out and up to worship the one true God. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. 
and see him des- describing the predicament of us human beings, so focused on ourselves and so focused on our stuff. Now, thankfully, God saw us in that predicament, and he made a way for us to be saved from that predicament. In uh, 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul, again, using language from uh, the creation, says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying that God who said, fiat lux in the darkness of the universe, is saying fiat lux in the human heart. The human heart, described in Romans 1, is, is darkened with the futility of thinking. And God's saying, no, let there be light in those hearts. Allow them to see my light. And where do you see that light? In Christ. The face of Christ is where that light is seen and where it's turned on in the human heart. Jesus would agree with Paul, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. The next part of the Nicene Creed reads like this, that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through Him all things were made. And that part of the creed, acknowledging that Christ is self-existent, that He is eternally begotten of the Father, He wasn't created, He is divine, He is God, and through Christ all things were made. And it is through this Christ that we receive light because of what he did for us at the cross of Christ. We're reminded of this every time we come to the table on a very dark and chaotic and disordered night where Jesus is being betrayed. He's about to be abandoned by the rest of his disciples. And he takes bread, the one through whom all things were made, and blesses it, and then he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. He knew that the darkness and the chaos of that night was going to have to crash in on him to the point that he was going to become so disordered that he would literally be dead, and he did that in our place so that we wouldn't have to be crushed by the darkness and the disorder brought about by our sin. Right now, um, my wife Melanie's grandmother, who's 98, is uh, near death. She's, on hosp- she's in hospice, and we were talking to her on Friday, and she just said, she said, I'm falling apart. I'm just falling apart. I was like, yeah, that is a really great description of the effects of sin. We just fall apart, the darkness and the death. Is a, is a decreation, a disordering. And Christ knew that if he didn't do what he had to do on the cross <laughs> to reverse that, that we would be captive to that darkness and that death. 
but instead he went through that for us and for our salvation. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks for the cup, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. So he knew that his death would be a payment for sin, and if that sin is forgiven, then the effects of that sin, which is death, disorder, darkness, chaos, could be reversed. And so the one that hovered over that chaotic, dark, watery chaos and said, let there be light and let there be sky and sea and let there be sea and land and let, there, uh, let it be filled with fish and, and uh, birds and with animals and next week with human beings. He's also saying, let light shine in our dark hearts so that we can be brought back into relationship with our loving and creator, God. So if you've not yet received that good news that Jesus has done this for you, I want to encourage you to do that by faith this morning, to trust Christ, that he is the light that can light up your darkened heart and bring you back out of self, out of stuff, and back into worship of your one true God. Or at the very least, to say, you know what, I want to explore this more. And continue to come on Sundays and hopefully reach out to others in the room to have conversations about what would this be like? That if, if I started to follow Christ and receive this gift that Pastor Robert's talking about. Um, for those of us that we have received that gift, this is a good reminder. Because our, our default does seem to be oftentimes going back to self and stuff and needing to be reminded that we are worshiping the one true creator God, who is good and who has made everything and is somehow also attentive to our own hearts and willing to shine light in there and bring us into relationship and grow us in that relationship. So I pray that that this passage and this sermon would stir that in you and that would be an encouragement to you because I know there's, there's just a lot of chaos, right? There's a lot of chaos in our own hearts in our world, our families, and we serve and worship a God who can hover over that and bring order out of that chaos. And eventually, He will do that through and through. (laughs) He will bring that created order in the restored new heavens and new earth. And what He has given us the task to do is to be His church, to be um, kind of an exemplifying of this order as best we can in his grace and by his spirit to show the world that he can bring life from death, light from dark. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage and I pray that it would encourage us to remind us of the God that you are, that you are sovereign over all things and also attentive to our hearts. And that you've sent your son to die in our place and to bring us out of darkness and chaos and disorder and into the light and into a new order with you uh, as we walk with you as your disciple. And Lord, we, we confess to you, we long for the full restoration of this world. Um, and we're so grateful that we have that hope that all things will be made new. Um, but we long for it. And uh, we, are, we wait for you to return 
And uh, we do this taking of the bread and the cup as you told us until you return. So please bless the bread and the cup in our time as we worship and as we take these uh, remember things of, uh, of remembrance of your death, your burial, and your resurrection. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.